in the eyes of the homicide investigators and all of their staff, you could just tell they were going to get this guy. Good morning, everyone. I am live this morning in Monterey Park, California, the scene of America's deadliest mass shooting since Uvalde. Poppy and Caitlin are in New York. Police say that the gunman is dead after a massive manhunt and SWAT team standoff. What we're learning now about the shooter and his connection to the dance studio where 10 people were killed. Plus, the FBI has searched President Biden's private home over the weekend, finding more classified documents inside. Could additional searches be on the way? And... That is Graceland bidding a final farewell to Elvis's daughter, Lisa Marie Presley. We'll get to all of those stories in just a moment. We're going to begin with the mass shooting here in Southern California. The massacre striking terror into the Asian American community as it celebrated the Lunar New Year. Now, investigators are saying that the gunman shot and killed himself inside this white cargo van that you're looking at right now when police finally caught up to him hours after the rampage. The sheriff has identified the shooter as 72-year-old Hu Khan Tran. This all began Saturday night. The sheriff says Tran opened fire at a ballroom dance studio here in Monterey Park, killing 10 people and wounding 10 others. And we're told that he then went to another dance hall in a nearby city, Alhambra, where some quick-thinking bystanders jumped into action and took away his gun. But he managed to escape in his van. Now, the sheriff says the gunman was a, the gun, I should say, was a semi-automatic pistol, uh, which he believes is illegal here in California. Investigators are still piecing together the motive, but CNN is learning that the suspect was a regular patron at the dance studio that he attacked, and that's where he met his ex-wife. Kyung Law joins me live here on the scene as we stand in front of this. Kyung, this is a very disturbing story. No rhyme or reason three different locations. Uh, very difficult to understand, especially for this community, because this was the first New Year, Lunar New Year celebration, the festival for the city, the very first one since COVID. A, a chance for this community to reconnect, to re-engage after all of this anti-Asian racism, only to have one of their own commit this heinous crime. What I want to do here is to say to the community, Feel safe. You are no longer in danger. The Monterey Park shooting suspect is dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound following a police standoff Sunday. Law enforcement tracked a white cargo van that fit the description of a vehicle of interest from the shooting. For hours, SWAT officers tried to get the occupant of the vehicle to surrender until what officers believe was a gunshot heard from inside the vehicle. Homicide detectives are working around the clock, gathering additional information and working on determining the motive behind this extremely tragic event. Law enforcement sources tell CNN the suspect may have sought medical treatment shortly before the standoff. It is unbelievable. This is terrible. To see this happen in uh, this place is shattering. The 72-year-old alleged shooter opened fire at a dance studio where the city's large Asian-American community was celebrating the Lunar New Year Saturday night. Additional units requested, multiple victims, gunshot wounds. The gunman then left the scene and targeted another neighboring dance studio with a semi-automatic weapon before it was wrestled away from him. 
the suspect went to the Alhambra location uh, after he conducted the shooting and he was disarmed uh, by two community members who I consider to be heroes because they saved lives. The alleged shooter is Asian American and believed to have acted alone. He was a regular patron of the Star Ballroom Dance Studio, even meeting his ex-wife there, according to three people who knew him. I have confidence that we will, we will get over this crisis because we must, and we, can, we will only do so if we do it together as a community. Ten people were pronounced dead at the scene, making this mass shooting the deadliest since the Uvalde Elementary School shooting last May. The sheriff described many of the victims as likely being in their 50s, 60s or older. This tragedy marks the 33rd mass shooting so far this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Gun violence needs to stop. And I hope that this tragedy doesn't just go on a long list of many others that we don't even talk about until the next one comes up. Uh, we are getting a stunning eyewitness view from that second dance studio, the one in Alhambra, uh, just near this Monterey Park location. Brandon Say tells the New York Times, and he's the one who wrestled the gun away from this gunman. He tells the New York Times, quote, he was looking at me and looking around, not hiding that he was trying to do harm. His eyes were menacing from his body language, his facial expression, his eyes. He was looking for people. And that gun, Don, is what eventually got police tracking, you know, finding this, unraveling this entire case. Oh, it's interesting because they said that the gun is what got them unraveling, as you said, the entire case. But they're saying that the gun was illegal here in California. But I wonder if it was modified and how they were able to identify him through the gun, if it was an illegal gun. But those are details that we'll find out as the investigation continues. I want you to stand by, Kyung, uh, with your reporting. I want to bring in now retired LAPD Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. Uh, Thank you, Sergeant, for joining us. We really appreciate it this morning. Your assessment, we've been saying we're going to talk about the law enforcement response to this. But make sense of that of this. Is there any way to make sense of th three different locations? Uh, was there anger? Was there hate? What is going on here? Because he is an Asian American. Well, you know what my gut tells me is that he had beef with that particular community. I mean, we understand now that all of the victims were basically his contemporaries, people who were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so before I knew factually that he actually was a frequent visitor at this particular dance hall, that he had a familial relationship, his ex-wife uh, having met her there, um, I knew that there was something personal about those two locations. He went to Monterey Park first, uh, did what he did there, and then uh, tried to duplicate that in Alhambra, but for those heroic people who took the gun away from him, prevented another tragedy from occurring there. And so uh, we'll have to find out the why, because that's the thing that everybody wants to know is why he acted out the way that he did. Let's talk about this weapon because it is a, a, a semi-automatic pistol. I just believe that they were able to identify, figure out who he was through the pistol, but then the sheriff, LA County Sheriff um, Richard Luna saying that it was illegal here in California. Can you help us? put that together? It doesn't really make sense to me, right? If it's an illegal gun, then that would make me think that he possessed it illegally. He was able to obtain it illegally. Therefore, there wouldn't be a record, right? He wouldn't be a real registered owner that we would be able to uh, track as we would if the gun had been purchased legally at a gun store and the like. So I'm very curious as to 
how they were able to reconcile the two. Everything is very close together. If you look at where the police station or city hall is, you look at here where we're standing in front uh, of the Star Dance Studio here in, in Monterey Park. It's very small. Police were here within three minutes. What do you think of their response? Well, obviously, you know, L.A. County Sheriff's is a large agency, much like LAPD, and you know, we train for these kinds of situations. The officers did exactly what it is that they're trained and taught to do, and we saw something very similar when the SWAT officers engaged the suspect in Torrance. And so thankfully, um, not um, more harm occurred. The officers were able to quickly ascertain what they needed in terms of identifying the vehicle that the person was in, uh, getting pictures and putting that out there so that everyone uh, within La Southern uh, Los Angeles could be on the lookout for this van and the suspect. Yeah, they were able to apprehend him within less than, than 24 hours. Uh, it is, it's interesting to me as well that the L.A. County Sheriff, at least the, the Lunar Park, I should say, police chief, talked about these were young officers who had been on the job for maybe training had seven months or so total in total? You know, what a lot of people don't know about the L.A. County sheriffs is that most of them start off in the jails, right? You start off working as a detention officer, you're in the jail, and then after so many years, you kind of get your stripes, if you will, and you come out into the street and you work patrol. So it's not uncommon to encounter an officer, a deputy, who really doesn't have a lot of street uh, experience, but yet these officers were clearly well-trained and, and relied on that training and knew exactly what to do in this instance. They didn't hesitate for a moment and save lives, no doubt. They, one of the words he used yesterday is that they had not been prepared for the carnage that they saw, and that was extensive. How can you? I mean, even a veteran officer probably would have been shaken to their core to see the kind of death and destruction that went on in that town, in that dance hall. And so the fact that these officers were young on the job um, certainly doesn't uh, speak to their inexperience. Um, you know, they knew what to do. They were well trained and they acted on that. It just speaks to the trauma that the community is feeling here. The victims of that trauma and police are part of the, the they're victimized as well by this. Keong, you're part of the Asian American community here. And if you don't mind a personal story, because you're familiar with the community, your mother even was preparing to, to, to go to some of these Lunar New Year celebrations. Well, we, we were here yeah. this weekend on uh, Saturday, the day before the shooting. So my mother lives about five, ten minutes away from Monterey Park. I mean, we, we, these are the restaurants. My grocery store is here. The Costco has Asian-American items all over the place. Here in Monterey Park, it is as if the entire Asian diaspora is connected and, and moving together. You can eat in one block a ch Chinese meal, a Korean meal, a Japanese meal. You can shop, and everyone is insulated. And, and I'm guilty of this, too. When you are here among your own people, you let down your guard. So were there signs did people see something? Did they even know what they were? And we already talk about looking for the signs of a mass shooter in our elementary schools. So did anyone see anything? And did they know how to communicate it to the police? And we were just chatting about if you don't know how to talk to the police, if they don't speak your same language, talk to your kids so that they can communicate for you. Uh, all the city leaders here are saying, including the L.A. Uh, County Sheriff, saying that people should feel safe because the person who committed this is no longer with us. But there is definitely no longer a sense of celebration that had just, you know, been in place here uh, over the weekend. Kyung, thank you, Sergeant. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, Poppy and Kaylin were standing right here in front of, um, of where this happened. And there's a makeshift memorial that you can see. People have been coming by and paying their respects. But a traumatized community here, everyone trying to figure out why. No answers.
And on another blood-stained weekend in America, in Atlanta, a 13-year-old boy was shot and killed on the city's west side. That city has seen quite a spike in deadly shootings involving children. Under the age of 16, there is no information yet on a suspect or suspects. It has been released. The mayor says domestic disputes involving guns are also on the rise in Atlanta. And also in North Shreveport, Louisiana, eight people were injured, including three children under the age of 10 in a drive-by shooting. This happened just yesterday afternoon. Two of the victims' injuries are critical. Witnesses say multiple suspects fired at least 40 times into a home, and a motive for that shooting is still unknown. On top of all of that, 12 people were hurt in a mass shooting early Sunday at a nightclub in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Police say they believe the incident was a targeted attack. Witnesses say that a fight broke out between two groups and several people pulled out guns and began shooting. The chief of police there told CNN that it could have actually been much worse. There were three Baton Rouge police officers outside in a parking lot who immediately responded to the shooting incident. Those police officers immediately responded to the threat and we believe their immediate response prevented further injuries. Right now, police do not have a motive for the shooting. No suspects are in custody. Ahead, the FBI is still searching. President did search, as you know, Friday, President Biden's private home and found more classified documents. What we're learning about that latest batch ahead. Also, the White House's new strategy targeting Republicans they see as vulnerable. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. This morning, the investigation into President Biden's handling of classified documents has certainly escalated after the FBI discovered another batch of documents marked classified at the president's home on Friday. This is the fourth time that classified documents have been found at a private address of Biden since November. Paula Reed joins us now with more. I mean, this was a really significant development. Yes, there was complete cooperation by the Biden team and the lawyers, but the FBI was in the current president's private home and they found classified documents, more of them. Extraordinary, yeah. Poppy. The FBI searching the home of a sitting president for nearly 13 hours. And the president's attorneys say that during this search, six additional items were uncovered. Though it's unclear exactly what they mean by items. Does that mean pages, documents, boxes? We know from our reporting that investigators are still combing through everything that they took. We also know the president's attorneys received a, a receipt and accounting of everything that was taken. Now, previously, this house had been searched by the president's personal attorneys, and they are emphasizing their cooperation in this matter as a way to differentiate this case from the ongoing investigation into former President Trump. But look, even while the White House is trying to downplay this, this discovery once again raises questions about why there was classified material from Biden's time as vice president, possibly even from his time in the Senate, in his house, and how secure has it been while it's been sitting there. And we, just to be clear, because the Senate part is unique and different, because he was chair for part of his time of the foreign, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Do we know what time period the documents were found uh, that were from his time as senator? Or we don't know. 
No. And what's interesting is the way the statement is designed, it's unclear if that was classified information or if that was additional supporting uh. information that was scooped up. But Poppy, what's really interesting is we are seeing a, a difference in the approach here, mm. right? Because they have faced a lot of questions about why it took them so long to search these houses, why they mm. were letting personal attorneys do it, and why they weren't more transparent. But here in their statement, while not everything was crystal clear in that statement, they did say they wanted to move the search along as expeditiously as possible, likely mindful of the upcoming campaign season. The FBI did the search and they released a statement within 24 hours. It was late on a Saturday, but they did release a statement within yeah. 24 hours. But the nature of this case has also changed. This is now a full-blown criminal investigation to be overseen by special counsel Robert Herr. Poppy, he's not on the job yet, but we're told he is expected to onboard soon. Just remarkable. Two back-to-back -back presidents, two criminal probes of this, two special counsels. Paula, thank you. It'll certainly keep you busy. We appreciate it. Caitlin. Yeah, and that context there is so important for this next story, which this morning, as President Biden is entering this critical new phase of his presidency, he's got a new challenge on the horizon in a Republican-controlled House of Representatives and that expected 2024 campaign launch that Paula mentioned there. President Biden's longtime chief of staff, Ron Klain, is stepping down from his role and will be replaced with the administration's former coronavirus response coordinator, Jeff Zients. CNN's Arlette Sines is live in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where President Biden is this Monday morning. Arlette, this is a pretty big changing of the guard, maybe one of the most significant staffing changes that we've seen in the Biden administration. And it's also coming at a really critical time for the president. Yeah, good morning, Caitlin. It, it really is. And, you know, Jeff Zients may not be a common household name, but pretty soon he will be one of the most powerful figures in Washington as he is set to replace Ron Klain as chief of staff over at the White House. Now, Zients led the coronavirus response effort for the White House uh, until last spring. And he also was recently brought in to try to help identify uh, senior t uh, staff uh, to fill, come into the White House uh, should there be some turnover. But so far, we really have seen very little turnover with in this administration. Now, President Biden uh, landed on Zions for this job in part because it became clear, sources say, that White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain favored him as his replacement. And also, this comes as a, at a very critical period when it comes to what the president is trying to accomplish in the coming years. One thing that much of the next two years will focus on will be implementing some of the laws that President Biden got passed up on Capitol Hill. And when you talk to people at the White House, talk to sources, uh, Zions is known is a man who can get some things done. If you think of uh, the large vaccination campaign that happened with the coronavirus back in 2013, he was brought in to fix the Obamacare.gov uh, launch after some website woes. But certainly this is a very critical juncture for President Biden as he's facing that special counsel investigation and also uh, expected battles with Republicans up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's always a difficult job, but especially so now. Arlette, thank you so much for that report. Ahead, we're going to continue our coverage of the mass shooting in Monterey Park. Don is on the ground. We'll tell you what we're learning about the gunman, the evidence that's been found by the police, and now as they are searching, what was his motive? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Live now, there's a makeshift memorial in front of the Star Dance Studio here in Monterey Park, California this morning, the scene of America's latest mass shooting. Sadly, investigators are searching the home of the gunman who slaughtered 10 people at the dance hall here in Southern California, left 10 others injured. 
The Los Angeles County Sheriff says that the gunman shot and killed himself inside his van when police finally tracked him down hours after the mass shooting. CNN is learning that 72-year-old suspect Hu Khan Tran used to be a regular at the same dance hall, and it was where he met his ex-wife. Now, she tells CNN that her ex-husband was quick to anger and would become upset if she made a mistake when they danced because he thought it made him look bad. There's lots to discuss with our very own, very own Josh Campbell, uh, a law enforcement expert. Josh, good morning to you. Let's talk about the timeline here because it's so interesting. We have three different scenes. We do have police managing to get this suspect within less than 24 hours, but certainly he made his way around the community here, causing carnage. He did, and this was a, a, quite a distance that he covered. So this starts Saturday evening, 10.22 p.m. A 911 call comes in of shots fired here in the stand studio. Police arrive. This was a scene of chaos. People coming out, screaming, authorities trying to identify where the shooter was. They, they knew soon after that he wasn't on location. He actually traveled to uh, the city of Alhambra, which is not far from here, to another dance studio. And it was, the, according to police, the brave people inside that location that were able to disarm him. Uh, he then flees. The gun is left behind and authorities are able to gather intelligence from that gun. They know who they're looking for now. And it wasn't until yesterday on Sunday uh, that authorities pushed, you know, pushed out this information across the Los Angeles area. They were looking for a white cargo van. You know, I can tell you, I was a law enforcement officer here in LA. These uh, agencies are fused together, regularly sharing information. And it was an officer in the city of Torrance, which is about 30 miles from where we're standing, sees the vehicle, tries to execute a traffic stop, Officers hear one shot fired. They secret uh cover, they back up, and then we see that standoff. You know, we saw the video of the Bearcats coming in, the tactical vehicles, uh, they hem in this van, and eventually the on-scene commander makes the decision that we're going to uh, get in a stack, they have their ballistic shields, they go in, they breach the passenger window, they find him dead. Slept over the wheel, but here, here's the interesting part, because a couple of interesting things here, they weren't exactly sure. We are told uh, at the press conference last night that the, the, there were different plates uh, on the van, and so they weren't sure it was him, so this was a traffic stop, and they were trying to and make sure it was him because they had obviously they were looking for a white cargo van. That's right, and you know officers obviously will they they will react based on what a suspect does. So if they're trying to execute a traffic stop and this person tries to flee, even if they don't know this this is the suspect from this shooting, they're still going to try to obviously take that person into custody. The more they started to glean, obviously they have the van, they have a person who's not communicating with them. They're starting to realize what they're doing. A law enforcement uh, law enforcement source told me yesterday uh, that this was believed to be related to this incident. So they knew very quickly that this was likely the person they were dealing with. Let's talk quickly about the gun because it was a semi-automatic pistol um, that was had been had a cartridge in it, right, so that it could sh fire quickly right. without without changing it. Now we are told that they were able to identify the suspect through the gun, but yet and still the gun was illegal here in California. Can you? Explain that to us. How does that work? Yeah, see, we, we've been asking law enforcement about the genesis of that weapon. When was it registered? When was it purchased? We don't know the details. What's different about this shooter compared to some of the many you know, cases that you and I have sadly covered is his age. This is an elderly man. And so it could be that he actually obtained that weapon prior to California's assault weapons ban going into effect. So he may have you know, purchased it legally decades ago. We just don't know. Uh, but authorities say that that was key to helping them track down who this person was. Josh Campbell, thank you uh, very much. Uh, as it is uh, coming up on uh, daybreak here, in, in a while here in California, people are going to be waking up again to a very horrific event. Um, it, it, real, 
traumatic for everyone involved here, members of the community and law enforcement, Poppy and Caitlin. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you can you can see why. This is supposed to be a moment of celebration for them, and now it's turned into this moment of tragedy. Don, we'll stay with you, obviously, on the ground there. Also this morning, there's a new warning from Russia about what they claim will happen if the West does send offensive weapons and tanks to Ukraine. Also, it is the end of the road this season for mm -hmm. the Buffalo Bills. The highs, the lows of their rematch with the Bengals. Everyone talking about a neutral AFC championship game, not even thinking about you guys. How much did that motivate you coming into this? You better send those refunds. The NFC and AFC championship games are set. The Philadelphia Eagles are going to take on the San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals will go head-to-head -head with the Kansas City Chiefs after beating out the Buffalo Bills on Sunday. It was the Bills and Bengals' first matchup since DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest mid-game a few weeks ago. Hamlin even making an appearance. Coy Wire is live in Buffalo. Coy, it was always hard to see DeMar Hamlin through all the snow yesterday as you were watching him there at that game. A really special moment, uh, though, but one that in the end left some disappointed Bills fans, unfortunately, for Wolf Blitzer. Yeah. It was a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. First, there was excitement in the anticipation of this gorgeous, snowy night, Caitlin. Then there was disbelief with the way things played out on the field. And afterwards, players were in tears. Uh, one young fan crying his eyes out told me, I just love this team so much. The Buffalo Bills have become America's team. And it, through all this, persevering through adversity, the team and DeMar Hamlin uniting so many people along the way. DeMar Hamlin's first public appearance since suffering cardiac arrest on the field when these two teams played each other 20 days prior. Hamlin in a suite with his family during the game, pumping up the crowd on the jumbotron and holding up his heart hands, which have become a symbol for spreading love. I thought it was a pretty cool moment. We wanted to play for him and um, continue our, our mission. And again, we just ran into a team that played better than us tonight. The psychological roller coaster of these last three weeks seemingly leaving the Bills emotionally exhausted as the Bengals and quarterback Joe Burrow plowed through the snow, jumping out to an early 14-0 lead. Bills star quarterback Josh Allen trying to throw their way into a comeback just wasn't happening. Cincinnati winning 27-10. So, it's Bengals and Chiefs in Kansas City in the AFC Championship next week. Not the Bills and Chiefs in the first ever neutral site title game in Atlanta. You better send those refunds. <laughs> we don't care who's favored, who's not. Um, we're built for this, and, and uh, we're excited to go on the road to Kansas City. As for the Buffalo Bills and their fans, they have so much of which they can be proud. We could have made a lot of excuses throughout, throughout the year of what was going on, but guys continued to fight. This team continued to fight, Caitlin and Poppy, for the people of Buffalo. They were out in the community after a racist mass shooting eight months ago. They gave back after a tragic snowstorm, claimed the lives of dozens at Christmas time, and then nearly losing a teammate on the field. It really is unfathomable how they navigated all that and still finished with one of the best records in the NFL. It's uh, inspirational beyond measure. Yeah, absolutely. They had quite a season, Coy Wire. I know everyone's rooting for them, uh, and sad to see them not. I making was, that. I was. You know that, Coy. Thank you for all your reporting there throughout all of this, Coy. Thanks, you've Bob. been, you've been great.
All right, ahead this morning, we have new CNN reporting on why and how the White House is planning to focus on 18 House Republicans who were in districts that President Biden won. What efforts are being made at the national level to end the deadliest drug epidemic in our country? Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger joins us with the work she's doing ahead. Squeeze and shame. That is how the White House is planning to target 18 House Republicans from districts where voters supported President Biden over former President Trump in 2020. For Biden and House Democratic leaders, they believe this is the pathway back to a majority in 2024. CNN's Isaac Dover joins us with this reporting. Isaac, what did you find as you were talking uh, to these White House officials, these Biden allies, about how they plan to try to get these districts blue again? Well, look, this is starting to think forward to November, Caitlin, and, and starting to think about how they can offer carrots, like uh, maybe invitations to the president's box at the Kennedy Center, or sticks, like if they don't work with the White House on what they want, flying the president on Air Force One, trying to do campaign events or rallies in the districts. All of it with the idea that there are, uh, there's a very slim majority in the House, as we know, for the Republicans, thinking that in these 18 districts where uh, Biden did better in 2020 uh, that are represented by the House Republicans now, that's the way to the majority, back to the majority for Democrats in uh, November of next year. But it's also maybe a way to squeeze those Republicans thinking about their electoral concerns to work with the White House in the way that they want to do some governing in between now and then. Yeah, well, I thought this quote that you have in your story from Mike Lawler, who we've had on this program before, that Republican here in New York, he said, you know, about speaking about these efforts in the White House, aren't they going to work to get us to lose next November no matter what? I mean, how is the White House viewing that? Well, look, th this is politics. This is what it is. And it's trying to figure out how, uh, where the breaking point is, essentially, how far people like Mike Lawler can be pushed. Uh, Lawler is in a district that's supported Biden by a pretty heavy margin uh, comparatively to uh, even some of these other Republicans that are in these Biden districts. You also have uh, f five other Republicans in New York, six in California, that the White House and House Democrats are looking at. Of course, one of those seats in New York is George Santos's district. That district went for Biden by the highest margin of a district that is currently represented by Republican, that district in Long Island. And there is a sense that maybe that race could be coming up soon if there's a special election for his seat, uh, if something happens there. Of course, we don't know where that's going at this point. Yeah, we'll see how the map is playing out. Already looking ahead to the next elections. Isaac, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. Senior Biden administration officials are addressing the grim reality of the deadliest drug epidemic in American history. Number one killer of Americans between the age of 18 and 49, fentanyl. Uh, last year, we lost more than 100,000 Americans to drug overdoses. 70% of those were from synthetic opioids like fentanyl. The DEA has also seized more than 10,000 pounds of fentanyl powder. That much fentanyl could kill every single American. More than 107,000 deaths from fentanyl just last year. About two-thirds involved synthetic opioids, pri primarily fentanyl. And those are real people. They are sons, they are daughters, they are brothers, sisters, friends, neighbors, loved ones. So joining us now is Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger of Virginia. Uh, President Biden recently signed into law two pieces of her legislation trying to address this crisis. She is also a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and a former CA officer. Thank you for your time this morning. I saw your tweet last. Thank you so much. Of course, I, I saw your tweet last week about this, and, and and appreciate you getting up early to join us because I think this is not talked about nearly enough. 
And it is a crisis. Fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. As we know, you have spent so much time with parents grieving the loss of their children. One of your pieces of legislation was actually named after a victim of this crisis, that is Summer Barrow. How can this actually change things when we're dealing with the deadliest drug epidemic in American history? Well, it's important, and, and in the introduction it, you, you spoke to it, is how potent fentanyl is. We know that in Virginia, more than 75% of overdoses were overdoses related to fentanyl in 2021. Um, and, and so there's two elements to this. One is fighting the substance use disorder epidemic, helping those uh, preventing drug addiction, helping those facing it, and then um, helping them throughout their long recovery. That's the Summer Barrow Prevention Treatment Recovery Act that, that you briefly mentioned. But we have have to stop the fentanyl that's coming across our borders uh, so frequently entering the country at points of entry, mm-hmm. right? It, and it's it's concealed, it's hidden in trucks and shipments coming across our southern border. But the challenge with fentanyl is because of its potency, it is able to be concealed relatively easily uh, compared to other drugs that, that our DHS officials, that CBP have long been prepared for and able to interdict. So Securing America's Borders Against Fentanyl Act, which is a legislation that was signed into law late last year, um, does a couple really straightforward things. Um, we, we know that if we're going to get at uh, fentanyl, once it's in our country, we have to stop it from even coming in. So my law would require that DHS develop new technologies and strategies mm-hmm. uh, to, to detect fentanyl, recognizing the uniqueness of it, given how potent it is, small quantities can go a long way, be incredibly deadly, but also easy to conceal. Um, and so our call to DHS is to get serious about this. And in end of year funding, we appropriated dollars for them to, to take on this new action. I'm glad you you pointed out that much of this is crossing through legal ports of entry. I think the Washington Post did an extraordinary job in their deep dive in December of really getting into all the failures on the national level from both parties. Um, Not to mention, you know, the DEA is understaffed by 800 people. They have 800 vacancies right now. And here's what one law enforcement official told the Washington Post. Law enforcement did the best it could. We can only do so much in Washington. They have been very slow to respond to this. And now we're at a confluence of paralysis. Do you agree that Washington has failed America largely in both parties on this crisis? I I think if we're talking about what Congress has done, there are so many more things that we have done. So I'm going to be an optimist about this. It's, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, but when it comes to immigration reform, when it comes to a broken immigration system that day after day creates flashpoints at the border, overstresses, um, and understaffed uh, uh, border patrol, yes, we have to do more. When it comes to the fact that many of our CBP officers are using antiquated equipment uh, that cannot begin to find uh you know, well-concealed drugs, particularly those in small quantities like fentanyl coming across the southern border, yes, we need to do more. We need to hold them to a higher standard. We need to make sure they have the funding uh, to invest in new technologies. And we need to understand the reality of the threat. So much of what happens on Capitol Hill is we hear colleagues of mine in Congress just politicizing the issue. 
Um, it is a complicated issue, but it only gets fixed when we're real about the threat. The threat is that large transnational criminal organizations, cartels, are trafficking drugs across our southern border through points of entry, and they are el eluding and evading detection um, and ensuring that CBP officers have the ability to actually interdict drugs um, in the quantities that they're coming through. They do extraordinary work. Mm -hmm. but they need more support. And that's what this legislation is about, recognizing the reality of the threat and helping DHS and CBP have the actual equipment that they need on the ground in order to be able to do their job. Yeah, something needs to change because it is, you know, wiping away uh, so many uh, children in this country in particular. Uh, Congresswoman, I do want to turn to the classified documents found once again, more of them on Friday in President Biden's Delaware home. Just the day before that, on Thursday, uh, addressing a question on this, he said, there's no there there, and he has no regrets. You're a former CIA officer, so you know what it means to handle classified documents. And I wonder if you're concerned about now four different discoveries of classified documents being held outside of where they should have been by this president. Uh Absolutely. I'm concerned by any appearance of classified documents outside of a secure compartmented uh, information facility known as a SCIF. I'm a former CIA officer. I used to handle classified documents every day. I used to collect the information that was then put into classified documents. So I know that the sources of those classified materials at times can be um, individuals who are risking their lives to provide valuable information to inform uh, lawmakers to inform the president, to inform our military and diplomatic leaders. And safeguarding those documents is about safeguarding our nation's secrets. And so I think it's important that the attorney general has appointed a special counsel. Uh, I think that will be an, an important step mm -hmm. uh, in, in moving forward, answering the questions how these documents uh, got out of secured spaces, um, how long they have been in uncontrolled spaces, and, and ideally ensure that this never, ever happens yeah. again. And so I, I think that that's an important step, and it's one that I'm glad the attorney general is taking. Finally, before you go, you have called our national debt uh, a long-term threat to our economic stability and national security. The White House position is still that they will not negotiate at all with Republicans on the debt ceiling. Do you think that's a mistake by the White House not to negotiate at all? I think there are two parallel conversations. Um, I think the, the bigger threat than our existing debt uh, is the catastrophic threat of a potential default uh, on our nation's debt. The catastrophic uh, national security implications, economic implications of defaulting on our nation's debt, of um, putting the, the American full, the full faith and credit of the United States of America in, in, uh, in danger, that is an absolute crisis of our own making uh, if we go down that path. I think that we can have two dependent conversations. One, the United States of America must pay its debts. We need to be a reliable borrower on the international stage. And then separately, though in tandem, have the conversation about the financial choices that we're making, uh, how much we are borrowing, who we are borrowing it from, mm -hmm. uh, and, and long-term plans to get our spending um, in, in a place where it is insert your adjectives, sustainable, less, um, or, or better than it is now. Yeah. Uh, but I think holding the full faith and credit hostage uh, and potentially risking or being willing to risk a default on our nation's debt uh, for negotiations, those things 
uh, that that's just not a tenable threat that some of my Republican colleagues are making, uh, though I do recognize that we should and I would agree that we should be having yeah. long term conversations about our nation's fiscal status. Yeah, we must. It's been a quarter century since we've actually uh, the government has spent less than we've taken in. And we can't operate like that. Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger, thanks very much. All right, ahead, we're going to take you. you back to Monterey Park, California. Don is there live on the ground, the scene of the country's deadliest mass shooting since the massacre in Uvalde. Our special live coverage continues next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. neighborhood for them to walk around and have community historic Taiwanese Chinese community so to see this happen in uh, this place is shattering good morning everyone it is Monday January 23rd I'm Don Lemon you see Poppy and Caitlin there in New York I am live in California gunman found dead after killing 10 people here in Monterey Park California the massacre shattering this largely Asian American community we have the latest on the gunman who he is and what may have driven him to kill. Also today, Solomon Pena in court, the failed Republican candidate from New Mexico accused of hiring accomplices to shoot up the homes of Democrats. And now investigators want to know if drug sales helped fuel his campaign. In New York's powerful Republican Congressman Elise Stefanik is denying she knew anything about George Santos's deceptions, the many deceptions, of course, that he told voters. She did spend over a year, though, doing everything in her power to get him elected in that district. CNN's going to take a look at that relationship. It is a very busy Monday morning, but first we're going to get to this. The nation reeling from its deadliest mass shooting since Uvalde. Investigators searching for a motive after a gunman massacred at least 10 people and wounded 10 others at a ballroom dance hall here in Southern California. The sheriff says the gunman shot and killed himself in his van when police finally tracked him down hours after his bloody, bloody rampage. CNN is learning that he used to be a frequent here at this same dance hall that he attacked, and it's where he met his ex-wife. We're also told that the shooter also went to a second dance hall after the shooting to kill even more victims, but the people inside wrestled away his gun before he could hurt anybody and drove off in his van. He was disarmed uh, by two community members who I consider to be heroes because they saved lives. This could have been much worse. Uh, the weapon that we recovered at that second scene, I'm describing as a magazine-fed semi-automatic assault pistol. Not an assault rifle, but an assault pistol that had an extended large-capacity magazine Sinan's Kiyong Law has been following this story from the very beginning for us. Good morning to you, Kiyong. That was the last press conference that they gave last night, but there's still much more to go today, much more investigating, still no motive. Uh, you're absolutely right. The motive is going to be key today as investigators try to piece together exactly what would drive a 72-year-old man to turn on his own community, to head into these dance halls, not just one, but two, and attempt to try to attack two different locations. So the motivation is going to be key today in trying to piece, it, trying to piece all of this together. Investigators also need to figure out, how did he obtain this gun? The gun is illegal here in California. 
Was it purchased? Was it legally purchased and then altered? So there are a lot of questions about the weapon itself. And then this narrative, uh, Don, we, we've been talking about the, the New York Times interviewed a man named Brendan Say. And what he said, Brandon Say, and what he told, uh, what he told the New York Times is that he actually came face to face with the gunman at the second location and he was able to wrestle the gun away. So that is what helped bring investigators to the gun and then to identify this One man. of two community members, Kiyang, who um, made this tragedy a lot worse than it could have been. It's terrible, but they credit him for taking down uh, the man, at least wrestling the gun away before he was able to get back into his van and then they were able to get him uh, in Torrance, he, uh, he, he, turning the gun uh, on himself. But it's interesting because it, is, because it is believed, if you're speaking to law enforcement, and we spoke to one member of law enforcement last hour, that he was familiar, obviously, with the community and that he possibly had beef with someone they don't know they are investigating. But that is one element that they have to look at today. The curious thing is that the ex-wife who CNN has spoken with, uh, they divorced many years ago. So what exactly is it that would bring a man, again, 72 years old, to obtain this weapon, to drive? Hemet is, is not close here. Hemet is where he lived. Hemet is where he lived. He lived in a 55-plus community. There are trailer parks there, and he lived in one of those trailer homes. He had sold his home here in the San Gabriel Valley, uh, was living in Hemet, and then drove back. So many years after the divorce, decided to come back. What is that about? That's going to be something investigators are looking at. Kiyung Law is going to be following this story for us uh, today. Kiyung, thank you very much. We appreciate that. We're going to turn now to speak with a representative uh, from California, and that is Mark Takano. Uh, he is the vice chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, and his district is next to Monterey Park. We're so happy to have you this morning to help us get through this very tragic situation, Representative. Thank you so much. Have you learned anything new overnight about the investigation or the suspect? Uh, no, Don. As you know, the investigation's ongoing. I don't have any further information to uh, convey to you about that. Okay. And, and nothing about a motive, because that is what every, this is so perplexing, uh, nothing about a motive or the suspect's history, representing. No, uh, you know, Hemet is not in my district, but it's closer to where I represent in Riverside County. Um, my district is not adjacent uh, to Congresswoman Chu's, but you know, I want to emphasize that I've been to Monterey Park and the surrounding communities a number of times. It's a vibrant, uh, they're vibrant communities, Asian American communities. This is just a tragedy of, of just incomprehensible proportions. And I just, my heart goes out to all the people of Monterey Park. And, uh, and of course, I'm thinking of my colleague Judy Chu at this moment. If you can explain to our viewers um, just what a celebration like this is like in this area, having so many members of the AAPI community and beyond gather, hundreds of thousands of people were supposed to be here. Well, Lunar New Year and New Year, the idea of New Year's in general in, in Asian communities is really very, very important. You know, shop owners um, and people uh, will prepare for the New Year uh, by cleaning their homes and uh, straightening their books out, uh, just to the idea of cleaning, uh, cleaning out the old and preparing for the new. Um, special foods and cakes and, uh, are prepared and there are festivals and uh, it, it's just a very joyous time of year uh, for families to get together uh, and to have a tragedy such as this happen on the eve of the Lunar New Year 
uh, is just, uh, it's just incredibly sad and tragic. As the vice chairman of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, I just want to talk to you about the violence that has been committed against uh, Asian <clears throat> Americans. The LA Times is reporting that violence against the AAPI community increased 177% in California alone. Monterey Park is about 65% Asian American. Can the community ever feel safe? Will there ever be a sense of safety here soon in the near future? Well, I just want to emphasize to the community that uh, thanks to the good work of uh, Sheriff LA County Sheriff Luna uh, and his and, the, and his deputies, uh, the suspect was identified very quickly. Uh, we know that the suspect took his own life, so the community can feel safe from uh, from that threat. Um, they can also go to the Langley uh, Senior Citizens Center. Those who uh, maybe have been touched by this violence, it's been set up as a hub. But I want to emphasize one more thing, Don, is that. Uh, as the former chairman and current ranking member of the Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, I'm very familiar with PTSD, and uh, it's my responsibility to ensure that veterans and service members who've been exposed to horribly violent uh, experiences uh, get the help they need to, uh, you know, heal the unseen wounds, the invisible wounds, as well as uh, whatever physical wounds they have. Uh, this is, I think, the, uh, the issue that we need to pay attention to for this community uh, and all communities. It's, uh, you know, just last year there were over 600 instances of gun violence um, and gun violence being, determined, uh, being uh, defined as uh, incidents with four or more people killed or injured in a, in a, in a shooting. Um, we've already got 33 of these incidents this year. Um, I'm thinking about literally the thousands of people who are touched by uh, these moments of gun violence, uh, the physical wounds they have to recover from, but also the invisible wounds. And they're not unlike uh, what our veterans um, face. I mean, the, 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 the long-term support that we're, we're, we're gonna need to provide them. Yeah, and we're only three weeks into the year with 33 such incidents so far. Congressman Mark Takano, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Caitlin. All right, Don, we'll stay with you there on the ground. Also this morning, there's some news coming when it comes to the international effort in Ukraine. Uh, Germany says that they are expected to make a decision soon on the delivery of those Leopard 2 tanks potentially going to Ukraine. They are specifically designed to compete with the Russian T-90 tanks that have been used in this invasion. That's why Ukraine is pleading for them. Meanwhile, the Kremlin is issuing a stark warning saying that Ukraine will pay if Germany, if Germany does send those tanks there, if they send other weapons. CNN's Fred Pleiken is live in Kyiv. Uh, Fred, this has been such a big question over whether or not these tanks are actually going to yeah. go. It's caused this huge discussion that we've seen playing out. There was that massive meeting in Germany on Friday with including the Pentagon chief. What is the latest on where they stand on whether or not they are actually going mm. to sign off on countries being able to send these tanks to Ukraine. Hmm. 
Yeah, hi, Caitlin. It certainly seems as though it's moving in that direction, but it's unclear how long it is still going to take. It was quite interesting because uh, yesterday the German foreign minister came out and said, look, if, for instance, Poland, which has been pushing Germany very hard, wants to send these German-made battle tanks, which Poland also owns, to Ukraine, the Germans wouldn't stand in the way. Now, it's not clear whether or not the German foreign minister got ahead of herself a little bit because today the Germans came out and said they haven't even received an official request from the Poles yet to send those main battle tanks. Meanwhile, Poland has been ripping into the Germans, saying that they want to create their own coalition of European countries to send those tanks and then wouldn't even ask the Germans for permission if they were to, to send those main battle tanks, which is usually not in line with the way these things are done. One of the things we do have to mention is that the Poles so far have sent a lot less modern material to Ukraine than, than the Germans have. The Germans have sent uh, multiple rocket launching systems, very capable air defense systems, and are now going to send infantry fighting vehicles as well. But the main battle tanks are literally the main issue at this point in time. The Germans say they want the U.S. to also send Abrams tanks if the Germans are going to send the tanks that they make. Of course, we know that the U.S. is not there yet or says it won't send Abrams. I spoke to a Ukrainian official, uh, and he said that the Ukrainians need about 300 to 400 modern Western tanks to really turn the tide here on the battlefield, Caitlin. And can you just quickly explain why Germany is reluctant to send these and why they have to sign off for other countries to send these German-made tanks mm. to Ukraine? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, because because they're German made, the country of origin has to sign off if a country that bought, bought these tanks is going to export those tanks to another uh, to another country. That's something that's general practice. For instance, if a country buys Abrams tanks to the U.S., they couldn't just export them to Ukraine either. The Germans have various problems with that. First of all, they fear that it could escalate the situation uh, in Ukraine, that the Russians could retaliate uh, against Germany as well, even though we heard from the Kremlin, as you correctly pointed out earlier, that they said it would be the Ukrainians that would bear the brunt of their retaliation. But that's something that the Russians have said with pretty much every new weapon system that was delivered to Ukraine. They've always said there would be a massive response. And in few times has there actually be a been a massive response from the Germans. Of course, the Germans also have a big legacy in this part of the world as well. Of course, and they, they invaded this place. Uh, Nazi Germany did in, in the 1940s. And that certainly is something that still weighs very heavily with them. One of the things that the Germans really don't want is the optics of a German tank rolling over a Russian position in Eastern Europe, Caitlin. Yeah, Fred Plakin, great reporting. Thank you. We'll stay on that decision. Ahead, we're also going to be joined by the former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, John Bolton, to weigh in on, on this as well. Meantime, Solomon Pena faces a court hearing in just a few hours. He is the losing Republic, Republican candidate for the State House in New Mexico, who allegedly hired accomplices to shoot up the homes of Democrats. And now prosecutors want to know if drug sales helped camp helped finance his failed campaign. Our Lucy Kafanov has been following this story from the beginning. She joins us now with more. So obviously he's got this court appearance in just a few hours and now major questions about potentially nefarious connections and funding for his campaign. Yeah, good morning, Poppy. I mean, this story just keeps getting more and more bizarre. CNN has learned that the New Mexico Attorney General has opened a formal investigation into Pena's campaign finances after finding that one of his biggest donors was also one of the alleged gunmen for hire. He was arrested earlier this month with cash, guns and fentanyl pills while driving Salman Pena's car. 
Mr. Pena, you will be afforded a hearing on the state's motion for pretrial detention. That next hearing for Solomon Pena will happen later this morning, where prosecutors are expected to begin unraveling his journey from Republican state candidate and election denier to accused mastermind behind four politically motivated drive-by shootings, targeting the homes of Democrats like Debbie O'Malley. This happened when my husband and I were asleep and my grandkids could have been spending the night. Albuquerque police say Pena was fueled by election lies and drew from his criminal past. Pena spent years in prison for charges including burglary and larceny, telling reporters last summer that jail time had changed him. I had nothing more than a desire to improve my lot in life. That path would lead to Republican politics as a follower of Donald Trump. Video shows Pena at multiple Trump rallies from Washington, D.C. to Phoenix, Arizona. And like Trump, when Pena lost his 2022 run for state office by a massive landslide, he invoked the former president, saying he never conceded. Hi, my name's Solomon Pena. Can I speak with Debbie O'Malley? Ring video shows him tracking the homes of the Democrats he wrongfully blamed for his election loss. Police say Pena then texted the addresses of targets to four suspects to carry out the shootings, writing, they just certified it. They sold us out to the highest bidder. They were literally laughing at us while they were doing it. Prosecutors alleged Pena then paid this man, Jose Trujillo, to help carry out the shootings. Things fell apart when officers caught Trujillo driving this car, containing fentanyl and guns. One of the guns traced back to the shootings. The car registered to Solomon Pena, according to a law enforcement source. Bernalillo County Commissioner Adrian Barboa was also targeted. Four bullets ripped through her home into the room where she had just been playing with her granddaughter. It makes me angry that one person makes me angry that we have a former president and current elected officials in highest level of government that think it's OK to, you know, invoke violence in these situations. So, yeah, range of emotions, anger, sad, disappointment. Police are also investigating whether drug money was laundered into Pena's race for office. His de defense attorney telling CNN this accusation is still under investigation. She urged the public to avoid a rush to judgment. Poppy? Lucy Kafanov, so many developments in this story. Uh, thank you very much for the reporting for us. Also this morning, the problems surrounding George Santos and the lies he told about his background are putting key House members, House leaders, in the spotlight. CNN's anchor and chief investigative correspondent, Pamela Brown, is with us now. Pam, you know, I guess the question here that what you've been looking at is Elise Stefanik's role specifically in this, given she is one of the most prominent Republicans. She is a New York Republican, and she worked hard to get George Santos elected. What has she said that she knew about his background? Well, Caitlin, one of George Santos's, as you point out, his biggest cheerleaders throughout his campaign was Elise Stefanik. She is the number four Republican in the House of Representatives and the most influential Republican in her home state of New York. And a senior Republican official involved in campaigns I spoke with told me, quote, Stefanik's team was laser focused on electing Santos to Congress more than just about any other race in the country. Now, Stefanik insists, she tells, uh, her team tells CNN she didn't know about 
Santos's pattern of deception until the New York Times revealed he made up the stories about his past, including lies about his jobs, uh, his school and family history. But throughout the Santos campaign, Stefanik was a significant supporter. And we talked to several people who donated to Santos's campaign, including one man who gave tens of thousands of dollars, who paid Stefanik, said Stefanik's support influenced them to donate. And Stefanik endorsed Santos early in his campaign. We should note more than a year before the election. Her tweet included a link to a fundraising page that would benefit both her and Santos. And then she later tweeted that a lunch event raised over $100,000 to help George flip New York District 3. One donor who was at that lunch told CNN the only reason they donated was because of Stefanik. And Santos understood the power of Stefanik's endorsement as well. He used a photo of the two of them, as you see right here, as the banner image for his Twitter page up until last week. Republican consultants said they first heard of Santos's issues in the summer of 2022, but it's unclear how so many pros in the political arena let Santos slip through the cracks. Of course, we also know Republicans really needed that district. Kevin McCarthy did uh, for, for one to get the vote to be speaker. So um, he even did an event we should note October 3rd, just before the election, in support of Santos. And he, he said he always knew there were issues with his resume just uh, right. uh, recently. And the question is, what issues? If you always knew what issues, I mean, I think the fact that the New York Times revealed this weekend that vulnerability report, Pamela, that was done, right? Yeah. That a lot of people from his campaign knew about a lot of these vulnerabilities. Some of them quit because of it. Even raises the bar in terms of answering those questions about what did powerful Republicans who got behind him know or not. And in terms of Elise Stefanik, she endorses a lot of folks, right? So what mm -hmm. makes this different, potentially? Well, I mean, you know, when, what makes this different here is that Stefanik didn't just endorse uh, and help fundraise for yeah. Santos. According to multiple sources we spoke with, uh, with direct knowledge, one of her top aides was advising Santos's campaign that we should note there's no record it was in an official capacity. Uh, we're told he even helps Santos hire people. Now, when we asked Stefanik for comment, her spokesperson said no one from her team worked for or advised Santos. And they sent a statement that reads in part, Congress Congresswoman Stefanik supported all GOP nominees and targeted New York seats, just like every other New York Republican elected official and the entire House Republican leadership team. Yeah, it's just, just fascinating reporting to look at and to examine that, especially as these leaders are obviously going to continue facing questions over this. Pam Brown, thank you so much for that reporting. Thanks. All right. Also this morning, we are waiting for the release of the first opinions of this Supreme Court session. The court is moving at a historically slow pace. So what or who is behind the slowdown? Also gun violence shattering lives, communities across the country this weekend. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, the Supreme Court is set to release its first batch of rulings for this term. About three months into the term, it marks the first time in the high court's history that the justices have waited this long to release an opinion in a case. Joan Biskubic joins me now. Joan, it's not just the length. There's a lot of they're going to get back to reading their opinions, some of them from the bench, but not the dissents. Things feel different. 
It is different, and it's sort of great to have them back all up there. You know, first of all, it's uh, noteworthy because it's the longest time since they started in October that they've been able to announce the resolution of one of their cases. You know, they heard cases in October, November, December, and early January. And it's a real mystery, you know, what has caused this delay. It could be that, you know, many of the divisions that we saw at the end of last term in the uh, abortion rights case still linger. Uh, there's certainly signs of that. The justices have also started new security protocols for how they handle drafts and deliberations uh, as they try to uh, come up with a, a ruling that has at least five votes on it. And we have a new justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's been quite active during oral arguments, and she might be writing more or wanting more time for deliberations behind the scene. Uh, the old Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, who are both no longer on the court, were known for their speed, and maybe things are just taking a little more time. But then the other piece of history today Today, uh, Poppy and Caitlin, is that they will actually be there to read the excerpts of their opinion from the bench. Uh, that hasn't happened since early uh, 2020 when everything broke for COVID. They came back in 2021, but we're releasing their opinions only electronically. So mm -hmm. it's going to be exciting to see them up there uh, on that mahogany expense of a bench. Yeah. Getting back to the way it was, certainly. That's Joan, right. Thanks very, very much. We'll wait for those opinions at 10 a.m. Yeah, but with such a different context, given all this investigation. It, and given everything. no no result in the leak investigation. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, and that yeah. New York Times reporter that we can saying, it's kind of deepened the mistrust there. Absolutely. So fascinating to see. All right, this morning, we are just three weeks into this year, 2023. And the Monterey Park shooting, if you can believe this, was the 33rd mass shooting in the U.S., Another weekend in this country underscored with gun violence. In Atlanta, police arrested six people who were protesting the fatal police shooting of an activ activist, even charging them with domestic terrorism. We have the latest for you ahead. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. I'm coming to you live from Monterey Park, California. This is the scene of America's latest mass shooting. Here's what we know right now. The gunman who ultimately took his own life has been identified as 72-year-old Hu Khan Tran. Tran opened fire Saturday night at a ballroom dance studio, killing 10 people and wounding 10 others. We have also learned that he used to be a regular patron at the dance hall and that he then went to another dance hall in a nearby city, but bystanders, bystanders disarmed him. He escaped in his van. The sheriff says the gun he used was a semi-automatic assault pistol, which he believes is illegal in California. And this morning, a 26-year-old man is dead after Atlanta police say he shot a Georgia State Patrol trooper and officer, and the officer fatally returned fire. It's just one of several deadly incidents of gun violence that broke out across the country this weekend. I want to go to CNN's Ryan Young now, live for us in Atlanta with more. Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Don. That shooting led to protests over that shooting of the 26-year-old. People were walking down Peachtree Street, the famous Peachtree Street here in Atlanta. And at some point, the protests turned violent. Uh, they set a uh, fire to a police car down the street here. And you can see some of the damage that was left behind by some of these protesters as they went after the ATM. They busted out windows all along downtown. And the mayor and police were not happy about this latest incident here in the city.
Another violent weekend across the country leaves communities and victims reeling. In downtown Atlanta, six people were arrested Saturday night after protesters erupted in response to the fatal police shooting of 26-year-old activist Manuel Esteban Paez Taran earlier in the week. Police say he was shot near a proposed 85-acre, $90 million law enforcement training facility dubbed Cop City by its opponents who set up camps trying to halt construction. Police were implementing a clearing operation to identify trespassers when they say Tehran opened fire on them. The fellow demonstrators and his mother say he was a known pacifist. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, however, bolstered the account of authorities when they said that Tehran was in possession of the very firearm used to shoot a state trooper and that the bullet recovered from the trooper's wound matched the same weapon. Police say protesters marched peacefully until a group began breaking business windows and set fire to a police cruiser. They were pulling up in U-Hauls and they had the, uh, the, uh, the type of glass breaker that taps the, the window and the glass just automatically shatters. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that this was happening here in America. These individuals meant harm to people and to property. And so to the people of Atlanta, I have said from the beginning of my administration that keeping our city's streets safe is my uh, top priority, and we will continue to leverage all of the city's resources to make that happen. The elevation of it clearly had to be stopped relatively quickly by the police, which happened. Uh, and I think it is telling that most of these people are not from Atlanta, uh, not even from Georgia. And on the west side of Atlanta, a 13-year-old boy was found dead with multiple gunshot wounds, according to Atlanta police. Investigators have not released information on a motive or suspect. My message is simple to those who seek to continue this type of criminal behavior. We will find you and we will arrest you and you will be held accountable. Meanwhile, a tragic scene unfolds in Baton Rouge. 12 people were shot at the Dior Bar and Lounge and left three people in critical condition early Sunday morning. At this point, we can say that uh, it is believed to be a targeted attack and that no, this was not just a random act. There's someone who knows something. Do the right thing. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been more than 30 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year, leaving over 50 individuals dead and 125 injured. All of us in this room and in our country understand this violence must stop. Now, you can see the signs of violence left behind as some of these businesses have to start cleaning up today. Uh, so many hotels nearby, there were people who were visiting the city who were also scared. But when you think about the gun violence throughout this country this weekend, so many questions and so many unanswered points right now, whether or not there'll be any arrests and some of the cases that we mentioned. Don? 33 in three weeks. Just unacceptable. Ryan Young, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We're learning much more about what's happening here, hearing from a young man who says that he wrestled the gun away from the California mass shooter and saved countless lives. So I want you to listen to an interview just aired just a short time ago from my, our, uh, Robin Roberts over on ABC. Watch this. It was Chinese New Year's. We were hosting a social dance party. Uh, I was in the lobby. Uh, it was late into the evening. Most of our customers already left. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to the front door. I was looking into the dance ballroom, the dance floor, and uh, this is when I heard the sound of 
the front door creaking closing and instantly followed by the sound of a metal object clinking together as if they were rubbing that's when I turned around and saw that there was an Asian man holding a gun my first thoughts was and did you I was gonna die here this was it did you but recognize him at then, all no I did not recognize him this was somebody I have never seen before. He didn't seem like he was here for any money. He wasn't here to rob us. When he was uh, looking around the room, it seemed like he was looking for targets, people to harm. Something came over me. I, I realized I needed to get the weapon away from him. I needed to take this weapon, disarm him, or else everybody would have died. Um, so when, when I got the courage, I, I lunged at him with both my hands, grabbed the weapon, and we had a struggle. We struggled into the lobby, trying to get this gun away from each other. He was hitting me across the face, bashing the back of my head. I, I, I was trying to use my elbows to separate the gun away from him, creating some distance. Finally, at one point, I was able to pull the gun away from him, shove him aside, create some distance, point the gun at him, intimidate him, shout at him and say, get the hell out of here, I'll shoot, get away, go. And at this point, I thought he would run away, but he, he was just standing there contemplating whether to fight or to run away. I really thought I would have to shoot him if he came at me. This is when he turned around and walked out the door, jogged back to his van. I immediately called police with the gun still in my hand. I was shook. I was shaking. I was shaking all night. I, I, I couldn't believe what happened. <laughs> After waking up, I, I noticed there was bruising all over my body. It's, my face has a uh, bruise across the nose and the back of my head has some bruising. I, I can't believe that this could happen. And it was because of that young man that the situation, a horrible situation, wasn't, it didn't get worse. And anyone who's involved in any similar situation when there is violence and something breaks out, it is, you, people often freeze. And it, he assessed that situation and jumped in yeah. and police are crediting him and another individual with not making this situation, helping to make this situation um, not as bad as it could have been. 10 people are dead, but there could have been more people. Yeah. There are three different crime scenes here. The one behind me, the one in Alhambra and the one in Torrance, California, where the gunman eventually killed himself. Can you imagine confronting yeah. someone or being in a situation like this? The people here who were in behind me, Katie, uh, uh, Caitlin and, and Poppy, in their 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond, some even 90 years old, and they were, you know, just sort of sitting targets for this man who came out of nowhere with this semi-automatic pistol, killed 10 people and put 10 in the hospital. At just 26 years old, to jump into action like that and yeah. not, not try to flee, to, to have that be your immediate response, Don, you're so right, that is. That says so much. When I was reading about him, his grandparents founded that ballroom. He runs the ticket office a few days a week. He's actually a computer coder. And he, he said the New York, told the New York Times he'd never actually even seen a real gun before. And for him to, to confront this man, and as he was saying there, I mean, I just, 
have chills listening to him, but been so grateful for his heroic actions. Um, all right, John, we're gonna, Don, we're going to check back in with you this morning as this is going on. Thank you for being there on the ground, obviously, for us. In Washington, the debt ceiling debate is ongoing. It, there's a warning about the irreparable harm. That's coming from the Treasury Secretary over what could happen and what a potential default, how it could affect you and your wallet. That's next. Also in his new memoir, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo alleging Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, should be prosecuted for leaking classified information. Well, John Bolton is here. He'll respond to that live on CNN this morning. Welcome back in Money This Morning. The debt ceiling debate continues in Washington amid a warning of irreparable harm that coming from the Treasury Secretary. If they do not raise the debt ceiling, that is not all we're watching. This week's economic calendar is very packed. Our chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here with us to talk about more. That's not the only crisis. That's right. Well, look, we're looking at um, a Fed chief, a Treasury chief, actually, who's warning us about what could be a real problem in the American economy if uh, if you don't raise that debt ceiling. And at the same time, we could get evidence this week that the U.S. economy ended the year really strongly. Big mm-hmm. economic calendar to start the week. We're, we're parsing all of this information for what the Fed will do when it next meets uh, January 1st. But I'm really looking at this GDP number on Thursday, the first estimate for the fourth quarter, 2.6% is the forecast. But, you know, we hear about whisper numbers. A lot of economists are saying they think it might be even closer to 3%, that, which would signify that we ended last year very strongly heading into a Wall Street, uh, Washington manufacturer crisis uh, with the debt ceiling. A couple other things we're watching this week, a lot of housing news. And if anybody's out there interested in mortgage rates, appears they might have peaked. Mortgage mm. rates 6.15% last week. We'll see if they continue on this on this path here. But that's because of signs of cooling inflation and some yeah. feelings that the Fed's not going to be Down so aggressive. Down from seven. We'll take Down it. Down from seven. Uh, up double from last year. Yeah, but but uh, showing some signs of, of, of peaking there. Okay. So all of these things were taken together here as we wait for the Fed to meet and we watch Washington to see if they can get their act together. Let's hope they do. Never Thank count you. On that. Never count <laughs> on that. Wise words. Romans, thank you. All right. Also this morning on the Ukraine front, Poland is stepping in as pressure is growing on Germany to supply Ukraine with its Leopard 2 battle tanks. Other countries have them and they want to send them. But as the maker of them, Germany must legally sign off for that for them to be transferred to the war ravaged Ukraine. Despite the pressure, Berlin has so far resisted doing so, though the defense minister said moments ago they do expect a decision soon. President Zelensky says it's urgent. This is no time for bargaining. This is the time for survival. We need to survive. Poland's prime minister says Germany is wasting time and, quote, we will not passively watch Ukraine bleed to death. Joining us now is the former national security advisor to former President Trump, John Bolton. Uh, Good morning, sir. And I guess the first question here is, do you believe that Germany should sign off on this, on them sending the tanks, on other countries being able to send them as well? Well, I think they should sign off. I, I think Germany's performance throughout this war has been incredibly disappointing, despite uh, Chancellor Schultz's uh, statement that near the beginning there would be a sea change in Germany's defense policy. It hasn't happened yet. It needs to happen. And do you believe, do you agree with what the Polish prime minister said this morning, that this deliberation that we've seen happening that's been playing out for the last several weeks is actually in the end hurting Ukraine? 
Well, of course it is. If they don't have the capability to respond to uh, long-rumored uh, impending Russian offensives, uh, that, that's bad for Ukraine. It's bad for the West as a whole because it plays into the Kremlin strategy to win politically what they can't win on the battlefield by splitting NATO. The chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, said yesterday that he believes the United States should send one of its Abrams tanks, basically just one, he argued, it all, is all that would be needed for Germany to then greenlight sending its Leopard tanks. Do you think that would be a reassurance for Germany? And should the Biden administration take that step, in your view? Well, I think we should do it anyway, because I think that's right for Ukraine. And if that brings the Germans along, that's great. But let's be clear, we need to have a conversation with Germany sooner rather than later. They need to step up uh, to their role appropriate to their size economically. Japan has just uh, announced it's going to double its defense budget in the next five years. Where's Germany? Are you concerned that what is playing out here with this decision makes NATO look fractured? Well, I think NATO is a lot more fractured than some of its political leaders would like to let on. There's been a lot of patting ourselves on the back. But let's, let's not forget, uh, Putin thinks he knows the Germans well. Uh, he was stationed there in the KGB, and I think he sees Germany as the weak point in the alliance. I want to move on to what we saw happen over the weekend, which is uh, the announcement that the FBI searched President Biden's home, which we should note the White House says was done in coordination with his, his attorneys. It was a consensual search that happened, not one that was done with a search warrant. It is still remarkable, though, to see the FBI go into the, to the home of a sitting president to search that. What does it say to you about the seriousness of this investigation into the classified documents that were taken? Well, I think it's going to get a lot more serious for Biden. The fact that apparently some of these classified documents go all the way back to his Senate days and yet have traveled around with him. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an incredible gift to Donald Trump that in many people's minds, not the least of which are Senator Dick Durbin, Senator Joe Manchin, two Democrats who said yesterday they thought the administration had been damaged. Uh, I mean, we, we need to do a lot more in the transition process to make sure these classified documents go where they're supposed to go at, at the end of an administration. Well, Trump has argued that the Justice Department is treating Biden differently than they're treating him. Is Trump wrong about that in your view? Well, they are treating Biden differently because Trump treated the Justice Department differently. And uh, the two are not equal, that's for sure. But I think politically, Biden's self-inflicted wounds here have pretty much absolved Trump from the prospect of prosecution. I think it's hard to prosecute a former president to begin with. I think Biden's uh, errors here make it almost impossible. You think Trump won't be prosecuted because of what's happened with Biden? Not on the documents. Now, the January 6th prosecution, the Georgia investigation, th those are different. But on the documents front, I think he's skipped free again. Not even on the obstruction front, because that is what the White House has drawn as the clear distinction, saying, you know, we're cooperating with the National Archives and the Justice Department. Trump fought them uh, for a year and a half that led to the FBI search of Trump's home. Here, here's the key point. We all say, and it's right to say, everybody uh, is... Uh, under the same rule of law. Nobody's treated differently. But I will say this, if the Justice Department indicts a former president and fails to get a conviction, the political firestorm that would ensue would tarnish the department for years. Uh, and you have to weigh that in the balance. You can't just be sure that you think you can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. You better do it. And if you fail, uh, Trump, Trump could ride that to the White House again, I'm afraid. 
I want to ask you while you're here this morning, Secretary Pompeo, who you served with, has written a new book, a new memoir, where he is extremely critical and scathing, uh, downright scathing in his assessment of you. And speaking of classified information, he writes, John Bolton should be in jail for spilling classified information. I hope I can one day testify at a criminal trial. And as a witness for the prosecution, he says your self-serving stories contained classified info and deeply sensitive details about conversations involving a sitting commander in chief. What's your response to Secretary Pompeo? Well, what he knows, I think, in fact, or should know, is that my book went through a four-month-long pre-publication review process precisely to make sure there was no classified information in the book. Uh, and it was arduous at times, I can, I can tell you. The National Security Council senior director responsible for, clear, for, for that review cleared the book, and inside the White House, because Donald Trump didn't want the book published before the election, he fired the senior director, a career employee of the National Archives, from her job uh, and, and tried to get another review going. Now, an interesting point here, and this is critical, before the Justice Department was ordered to bring the suit to stop publication of my book, they interviewed that NSC senior director, Ellen Knight, for mm -hmm. 18 hours over five days in the White House. They must have forgotten the thumbscrews and the rubber hoses to get her to change her story and she wouldn't. The book was cleared, uh, and I think if there's an investigative reporter that has spare time, they ought to look at who uh, in the White House and elsewhere in the administration, in the counsel's office, the top political levels at the Justice Department followed Trump's orders to try and suppress the book. I'm not talking about the line attorneys at the Department of Justice, but Trump's uh, top advisors who were content to try and suppress it. You're implying that something illegal happened? What are you saying there? Well, you know, reporters uh, uh, shelter under the First Amendment frequently. I'm sure that's much on your mind. This is a classic effort by Trump at prior restraint. Uh, and in fact, uh, we, I was told that a very top Justice Department official, on hearing that the book had been cleared, said, and I quote roughly, I don't give a blank about the facts. I want the case brought. So I think there's a lot there. This is entirely consistent with Trump behavior, trying to suppress other books, uh, and that's what happened here. And I, th I think Pompeo knows or should have known about it. If, uh, if he didn't know about it, it's incompetence in writing the book for not checking out the facts before he put it down on paper. And if he did know about it, that's uh, malicious and well beyond reckless to say things like that. All right, Ambassador John Bolton, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. A mass shooting in Monterey Park has left 10 people dead. The suspected gunman now also found dead. We're going to talk to the California Assemblyman who represents Monterey Park. That's next. Don's live on the ground. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good morning from Monterey Park, California, the site of America's deadliest mass shooting since Uvalde. Ten people killed inside a dance studio, more than a half dozen others in the hospital at this hour. And new details this morning on the investigation, the gunman, and the heroic actions that may have stopped a second attack by the shooter. Also this morning in Washington, the FBI conducting a historic search of President Biden's home in coordination with his attorneys and finding more classified documents. Now, as the White House deals with the legal implications, the political fallout is also getting worse. 
A warning from Russia this morning. If Germany sends its Leopard 2 tanks to the war zone, Ukraine will pay. This comes as two major Western allies are locked in a standoff. And a TV weatherman jumped on the subway by a group of teenagers after he tried to help an elderly man. Now those teens are free. CNN This Morning starts right now. And we're going to start here in California after a massive manhunt. The gunman who massacred 10 people in a dance hall here in Southern California is dead. The sheriff says that he shot and killed himself in his own van when police tracked him down hours after the mass shooting. We're told that he also went to a second dance studio to kill even more people, but the people inside were able to wrestle his gun away. CNN has learned the gunman was a frequent patron of the same dance hall he attacked and it is where he met his ex-wife. The shooting struck here, fear into the local Asian community here as it celebrated the Lunar New Year. We see elders walking around all the time. This has been a safe neighborhood for them to walk around and have community. Historic Taiwanese-Chinese community. So to see this happen in uh, this place is shattering. The sheriff telling everyone that the rampage could have been much worse if the gunman hadn't been disarmed at the second dance hall. He says that the gun was a semi-automatic assault pistol with an extended magazine, which is now illegal to purchase in California. Gun violence needs to stop. There's too much of it. And I hope that this tragedy doesn't just go on a long list of many others that we don't even talk about until the next one comes up. And new this morning, we are hearing from the young man who says that he wrestled the gun away from the shooter and saved countless lives. I want you to listen to this interview that he just did with ABC. I needed to get the weapon away from him. I needed to take this weapon, disarm him, or else everybody would have died. Um, so when, when I got the courage, I, I lunged at him with both my hands, grabbed the weapon, and we had a struggle. We struggled into the lobby, trying to get this gun away from each other. He was hitting me across the face, bashing the back of my head. I, I, I was trying to use my elbows to separate the gun away from him, creating some distance. Finally, at one point, I was able to pull the gun away from him, shove him aside, create some distance, point the gun at him, intimidate him, shot him and say, get the hell out of here, I'll shoot. Get away. Go. I want to bring in now Kyung Law and Josh Campbell. Good morning to both of you. Kyung, I want to speak with you first because you are actually a member of this community. Your family, your family's, your family's members of this uh, community as well. Your mother, I should say. And then listening to that young man who helped to wrestle that gun away, it speaks to the trauma that's in this community. Um, how someone was brave enough to stand up to what was happening, but then also the fear. He said he was afraid at the time and didn't even realize, I guess acting on adrenaline, didn't even realize the bruises that he had and, and really the danger that he was in at the moment. Yeah, he's working at his family's business. He's a coder. He's not trained to do this. And if you notice, he's quite young. Yeah. So to have all of this background of nothing and to suddenly step up and save a community. It's truly extraordinary. And you're talking about the community here, the trauma. My mother called me 20 times. Mm -hmm. 
just completely astonished and afraid because this is a community where you have so many Asian Americans walking about freely. It feels extraordinarily safe. I've been to the grocery stores here, the, the Costco, you know, the, I bought my car in this community. It is a place where a, Asian Americans come together, work together, and live together peacefully. And so it is astonishing that this happened within the community, but also to have a hero, a young hero, just step up and stop it. And they still don't know why, Josh. There's still no motive. That's right. They're still working to determine that. And quite frankly, they may never know. The suspect is obviously now deceased, uh, but we know that they're going back, trying to interview people who knew him, obviously uh, look to see if there was any type of precursor to this. Uh, you know, you, you look at this case, and Chung and I were just talking about this, you know, there's so many other cases where you see young men that are conducting these kinds of attacks, right? We see the mass shooting. There is a typical profile. Uh, this is the outlier. You have a 72-year-old old man here. Um, and so there will be a lot of questions. Was this one of this, these so-called injustice collectors, you know, people who have build grievances, they gather them, and then they finally act on them. We'll have to wait and see. But, you know, as Don, you and I were talking uh, earlier as well, that that also gets to this firearm that was used. And although that gun is now illegal in California, the suspect, who was 72 years old, you know, did he buy it decades ago when it was still legal? A lot of questions that we still have about this story. Yeah, but at 72 years old, it's a, it seems so odd for someone to you say to be a grievance collector this way. And, and one other thing I just want to point out, adding on to that, okay, he's, he's 72. There was a, a, a mass shooting um, just about a year ago in Laguna Woods, California, in Orange County. That shooter drove from Las Vegas, from Nevada, and shot a, at a church, killing one person, wounding several other people. He was 68. Yeah. I, I think there are some questions that the Asian American community needs to ask itself about signs and how to talk to the police. And if they don't have the language to speak to police, to call upon their younger kids to do that. Well, so a lot more that we have to figure out here. And uh, we would imagine a briefing will be happening sometime this morning. The last briefing last night was at 4.30 uh, Pacific time, uh, 7.30 Eastern time uh, last night. And they said it was gonna be the last briefing of the night, but I imagine they'll be giving one this morning to try to figure out again, what is the motive what exactly is the situation with this gun? Was it illegal to purchase or what? So there's much more to go here in California, Caitlin. Yeah, questions about the motive there, but also just overall the United States, because that shooting on Saturday in Monterey Park was the deadliest in the U.S. so far this year, but it was far from the first mass shooting this January. 36 mass shootings in 2023 have left at least 59 people dead across America, according to the Gun Violence Archive. We are only three weeks into the new year. Last year, there were 647 mass shootings, according to the archive, which, as you can see here, is up significantly from just five or six years ago. In the past year alone, America has experienced mass shootings in cities from Uvalde, Texas, to Buffalo, New York, Highland Park, Illinois, Corsicana, Texas, just to name a few. Don. Yeah, well, I want to bring in now California State Assembly member Mike Fong. Uh, Monterey Park is part of the district that he represents. Thank you so much. Good morning to you. I'm sorry that we're having to, to meet on, uh, you know, on such a horrific occasion. How's the community holding up? What are people saying here? Good morning, Don. Uh, thank you so much for having me here this morning. It's been a tremendous uh, sadness in our community. Our community is grieving and mourning the loss of 10 lives, 10 innocent lives here in the San Gabriel Valley, here in the city of Monterey Park and praying for the recovery of the 10 additional folks in the hospitals right now. But it's been a very challenging time here in the San Gabriel Valley, and we're mourning and grieving. 
this massacre. Now, until this happened just hours after you were on stage with the local leaders to celebrate this uh, Lunar New Year celebration here, um, and it, it, this is a, a predominantly Asian um, community here. I believe it's like 65 percent Asian Correct. community here. Yes. Um, this is one of the biggest celebrations of your community. On a day when we're supposed to be celebrating and celebrating family, celebrating community, it's the largest celebration in our community. Over 100,000 people were here during the daytime for the Lunar New Year celebration here in the city of Monterey Park. It's very honored to join the mayor and city officials and dignitaries across the region to celebrate the opening of the Year of the Rabbit, a year of hope and peace. And to have this peace shattered a few hours later was just very, very devastating and shocking. I realize, like most of us, you probably watched uh, the briefing last night. And as I mentioned just moments ago, they said it was the last briefing of the night. And I, I would imagine one will be announced soon this morning. Are you getting any updates from local uh, officials, local law enforcement about a, the possible motive here? In terms of a motive, I haven't heard any information in terms of a motive, but I'm in contact with local city officials, including the mayor of Monterey Park, Henry Lowe, and city officials, and also coordinating with state and federal officials to be in monitoring this situation very closely. The law enforcement, they're calling uh, the young man, or the, the two people who helped to wrestle the gun away in Alhambra, they're calling them heroes. Do you uh, agree with them? Do you believe that they are heroes, that they could have, um, that they saved this from becoming much worse than it could have been? Very proud of those two heroes that have stepped up to really wrestle the gun away from the perpetrator. This could have been much worse in Alhambra and added to the grief in our community. I'm very grateful to those two heroes for stepping up and making that happen. What's your response to people? Because as, as you mentioned moments ago, you were out speaking to them, the sense of loss and grief that they have. What, what do you say to them? It's very hard to provide any... It's, we're at a loss for words when we're talking to folks and really trying to make sure that they know that we're here for them and that we can provide the resources from the state and local government. But really, if anybody's dealing with trauma, with any issues that they need any assistance with, uh, please visit the Langley Center here in the city of Monterey Park on Emerson Avenue to really seek the assistance of crisis response. And we're here to serve. Our district office is open to here to serve as well. Anything that we can be helpful with, please reach out. Assemblyman Fong, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And we're sorry that you're having to deal with this in the community. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank and, you. Uh, Prayers to all the family. Absolutely. Thank you. We're reporting on this, but we have to remember, Poppy, uh, over the past couple of years, we have been reporting on all the anti-Asian hate yes. crime that has been going on throughout the country. So they have been dealing with this and now this mass shooting on top of that. And as you said, Don, a community that is 65% represented by the AAPI community. Um, thank you very much, Tom. We'll get back to you very, very soon. Also today, we should note, jury selection begins in the murder trial of Alex Murdoch, the man accused of killing his wife and his son. We'll take you live to South Carolina. Also, a group of teenagers assaulting a Fox News weatherman who was trying to stop them from harassing an elderly man on the subway. And I was like, yo, guys, cut that out. And they decided, all right, if he's not going to get it, then you're going to get it. And boy, did they give it to me. Well, a Fox News meteorologist was recovering this morning after four teenagers attacked him yesterday while riding the subway in New York City. Adam Klotz says the teens were hassling an older man when he intervened and tried to help the older man. And that's when those teens turned on him. Let's bring in our colleague, Bryn Jingrash. He's following all of this. This is so scary. So scary and pretty 
brutal beating to this Fox News weatherman, as you guys mentioned. His name is Adam Klotz, 37 years old. He was on the subway system here in New York City. He said he was coming home from watching the Giants game. It was early Sunday morning. And then I want you to hear what he says happened next. Hear me out, though. <laughs> you should see the other guy. <laughs> oh, my, my side? Don't laugh. My side is worse, so much worse than my face. This older gentleman was being hassled by this group of like seven or eight teens. And I was like, yo, guys, cut that out. And they decided, all right, if he's not going to get it, then you're going to get it. And boy, did they give it to me. Uh, they had me on the ground. Like My ribs are all kind of bruised up, too. They, they, got, they got their hits in. Uh, but that guy, he got out of there. He's fine. I got x-rays. I'm okay. This is all going to heal. So it's all good. You know what I mean? New York City. New York City. And you can see he's making somewhat light of it. He said there's more of a bruised ego than his actual bruised bones. But you guys can see he got pretty beaten up pretty badly. Um, we're told by authorities that the teens are, got away, but they were able to actually arrest three of them. One's a 17-year-old and two are 15-year-olds. Uh, and that's what's scary, right? And he even said that in part of his Instagram is, uh, you know, where are the parents? <laughs> why yeah. are these kids on the subway at 1 o'clock in the morning? And, and they why were they... arrested, but they're not, they've been released. Right, so they're card? juveniles. So technically all police can do is write a report for juvenile report for assault and then they get released back to their parents. So now it's going to be up to Klotz to decide does he want to press charges against these teens and what happens next in that whole system. But uh, yeah, they were, they were released to their parents. Wow. And Jen Grass, thank you for that. All right, this morning the jury selection will begin uh, in the highly anticipated murder trial of Alex Murdoch, whose attorneys say they are fully prepared. Murdoch is a former South Carolina lawyer. He is accused of murdering his wife and their son, Paul, in June of 2021. He has pleaded not guilty. Our Randy Kay has been following this case for months. She joins us live in Walterboro, South Carolina, with more. Randy, what can we expect in this trial? Good morning, Poppy. Well, jury selection should be getting underway here shortly, but we are already getting a look at some new evidence. A source with knowledge uh, of this investigation has confirmed to me that there is a Snapchat video that Paul Murdoch sent. That's the son who was killed at 7.56 p.m. Uh, the night of June 7, 2021. That would have been just moments before he was gunned down. Uh, the prosecutors are saying that is critical evidence to the case. They've asked the judge to subpoena uh, the Snapchat representative to come here and testify. The judge has signed off on that. But that is just one piece of evidence, Poppy, that we are expecting to see in a mountain of evidence as this trial gets underway. I think the police has my wife and child stop badly. Alec Murdoch says he called 911 after finding his wife and son bleeding at their hunting property in Islington, South Carolina. What is your name? My name is Alec Murdoch. That was June 7, 2021. Now, for the first time, we are learning more about how many times 52-year-old Maggie Murdoch and 22-year-old Paul Murdoch were shot and where. This latest court filing by Murdoch's defense attorneys includes an affidavit from a forensic expert hired by state law enforcement. The expert offers a disturbing picture of the murder scene. He determined two gunshot blasts hit Paul Murdoch. The first was to the chest but the fatal shot to his shoulder and head was so violent that his brain was completely detached from his head, according to the expert. The affidavit also includes pictures from the crime scene, which show the property's dog kennels where Paul Murdoch was shot. Are they breathing? No, ma'am. 
The affidavit also details how Maggie Murdoch was shot five times with a rifle, including one gunshot to the back of her head and scalp. While the sequence of the gunshots was not clear, the expert concluded that at least one of the shots was fired while she was on the ground, holding herself up on her knees and her right hand with her shoulders and head down. Also, court documents show blood spatter found on the T-shirt Alex Murdoch was wearing the night of the murders could prove he was in close proximity to at least one of the victims when they were shot. And in the court affidavit filed this week, the state's forensic expert stated there appears to be transfer and spatter stains on the front of Murdoch's T-shirt. Murdoch's lawyers have argued the blood got on his shirt when he touched the victims after finding them and deny he was at the house when the murders occurred. Still, prosecutors say he had a motive for allegedly killing them to hide his alleged financial crimes. Prosecutors claim Alex Murdoch defrauded clients, co-workers and family members of nearly nine million dollars. The day of reckoning was upon him and he was out of cards to play. That alleged motive dates back to a February 2019 boat crash during which Paul Murdoch was allegedly driving drunk. 19-year-old Mallory Beach was killed in that crash. Because Alex Murdoch owned the boat, her family filed a civil suit against him. His financial records likely would have been revealed at a scheduled hearing in June 2021. But Maggie and Paul Murdoch were killed a few days before, so the hearing was canceled, which is why, prosecutors say, he killed his wife and son. He's still trying to prevent who he really is from being out Murdoch's defense team has pushed back on the alleged motive. Mr. Murdoch had handwritten out a financial statement um, for purposes of that hearing. There's no doomsday reckoning in that regard. And there is more evidence that could put Alec Murdoch at the scene of the crime at the time of the murders. There is cell phone video uh, from Paul Murdoch's cell phone, which contains audio of Alec Murdoch talking to his wife and son. That timestamp on that audio video is 8.44 p.m. And prosecutors say the murders took place sometime between 8.30 p.m. and 10.06 p.m. So, of course, Poppy, that timeline is very yeah, key. It's a crucial question. Randy, thank you very much right outside of the courtroom there in South Carolina. And back to our top story this morning on the gunman who killed 10 people at a ballroom dance studio just as the city's largest Asian-American community was celebrating the Lunar New Year. We're going to talk to the founder of an anti-Asian hate organization next about this. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning, coming to you live from Monterey Park, California, the scene of America's latest mass shooting. Here's what we know right now. The gunman who ultimately took his own life has been identified as 72-year-old Hu Khan Tron. Now, Tron opened fire Saturday night at a ballroom dance studio, killing 10 people, wounding 10 others. We've also learned that he used to be a regular patron at the dance hall and met his ex-wife there. 
and that he then went to another dance hall in a nearby city, but bystanders disarmed him and he escaped in his van. Uh, the sheriff says the gunman used his, the gun that he used was an automatic, a semi-automatic pistol, which is now illegal to purchase in California. More details about that will be coming out in the days ahead. The tragedy is hitting hard among Asian Americans, many of whom have been dealing with an increase in overall violence against the community over the past few years, especially anti-Asian hate crimes since the pandemic. So joining us now to talk about this is the executive director of the AAPI Equity Alliance and co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate, and that's Manju Kulkarni. I'm so happy to have you on this morning. Thank you. You know, I was wondering about something that you said that I heard you say, um, that this may not be sort of traditional, um, a traditional hate crime against the AAPI community, but it's still targeted and it's still terror. He terrorized the community. Absolutely. And let me just say, first off, how devastated we are by this and that our, you know, hearts are with the community right now and our, as well as our thoughts and prayers. It's not the who or the why, but it's what has happened to our community after, you know, three years of anti-Asian hate. We're once again being targeted. And the perpetrator knew that this was Lunar New Year. He knew that, you know, thousands of us would be out this weekend. And so he came to this place and he terrorized the community um, with the shooting here and and then trying to do the same thing in Alhambra. So much as you look around, look, there were there were dozens of people here, right, at the, the place that we're standing in front of, and in many other areas celebrating the, the Lunar New Year. You have been speaking to some of those people. What are you hearing from the community? There's so much fear, Don, and trepidation because folks thought, you know, this would be the year that we could go out and celebrate, right? Um, the state of California made it a state holiday for the first time ever, mm. Lunar New Year. And so we thought we could put so much of what has happened behind us. But in fact, with this incident, people are anxious, they're nervous, they continue to be depressed, and especially our elderly community. Um, we did a report at Stop AAPI Hate with AARP. 98% in 2022 said that the United States was a more physically dangerous place for them. And they're not wrong. Um, even after what happened on Saturday night, we see. Um, but we're mobilized. Look at look at the screen there. Eleven thousand five hundred reported incidents. I mean, what do you want people to know about that? Well, there are a few different things. One is that our communities absolutely have been impacted by hate, and the hate doesn't always come from outside of the community. It can come from inside. And sometimes there are also other systemic issues. So it can be racism, it can be discrimination, and it can also be misogyny. Um, you know, we have heard that there may have been interpersonal violence involved here, maybe issues uh, of domestic violence, and we know that it's gun violence. So all of those really have come together uh, in what's happened, and so we need long-term solutions. Congresswoman Shu last night said during the press conference, is there any history of domestic abuse? Right. And that was, I was surprised that she brought that up, but that's important. Right, well, we need to know what happened, right, so that we can 
ensure it doesn't happen again, right? So that we can provide the resources that the community needs. Um, and let me just share that, you know, as part of um, Stop AAPI Hate and the AAPI Equity Alliance, we have 40 plus coalition member organizations. They are on the ground right now providing mental health services, legal assistance. There's now a GoFundMe page for folks who want to provide uh, help directly to victims and community members. So uh, we're reeling, but at the same time, we're resilient. We are out there and people can get the help they need. Manju. Well, Carney, thank you so much. And again, yes. I'm sorry we had to meet under such yes, circumstances. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Caitlin? Yeah, Don, that was a really good interview. Thank you for, for that. Such an important conversation to be having. Uh, also here in New York, we're monitoring what's happening in Washington when it comes to President Biden's staff. Sources say that he is going to be replacing his chief of staff with his former COVID response coordinator. We have the report and the latest next. Democrats in the Senate growing more critical and vocal of President Biden's handling of classified documents after more of those classified documents were found at his home on Friday. It's not supposed to happen. Uh, whether it was a, the fault of a staffer or an attorney, it makes no difference. The elected official bears ultimate responsibility. This morning, the daughter of the second most powerful Democrat in the House, Catherine Clark, is expected to appear in court after she was arrested during a protest in Boston this weekend. Riley Dowell is facing several charges, including assault by means of a dangerous weapon after an officer was injured. Police say that they found Dowell with a group of protesters defacing the Parkman Bandstand monument with spray paint and anti-police phrases. In a tweet, the congresswoman is weighing in, addressing her daughter's arrest, saying, quote, I love Riley, and this is a very difficult time in this cycle of joy and pain in parenting. This will be evaluated by the legal system, and I'm confident in that process. Well, this morning, we're learning about the man who is set to replace Ron Klain as White House chief of staff. President Biden has selected Jeff Zients. He ran the administration's coronavirus response effort. This is what Caitlin did all day yesterday. It is all your reporting, but I was texting you as I was reading it. It's fascinating because they're different. Biden and Zines are different. They manage differently, but this is his top pick. Very impressed by how he handled COVID. Yeah, it's really interesting also because Jeff Zients is not someone who has this deep political experience. He's yeah. more of a, a businessman. He's this former consultant. He was brought in, though, to help when Biden first took office manage the COVID response. And you know, he was kind of this seen as this master implementer, as people mm. described him in the West Wing, and so that's why they think he's going to be effective here. Taking over Ron Klain, who, you know, has been in the job for quite a long time, you know, two years, is a very long time to be chief of staff. It's a very tough job and really demanding. And so it's interesting that Jeff Zients is taking over uh, for two reasons. One, he was actually picked by Ron Klain to help do this talent search to last find someone fall. else? Not, not, not necessarily for the chief of staff job, but okay. he was looking. They thought there would be a lot of turnover after the midterms right. when they thought Democrats weren't going to do very well. So he was looking for more senior staff, cabinet officials. They didn't really have the turnover that they thought they were going to have. And so he was conducting that search and it didn't really materialize. And now Ron Klain, you know, is the most significant departure that we're mm -hmm. seeing in the Biden administration. What, Jeff Zients what about the moment? It, it comes in the middle of the fourth batch of classified documents they found improperly yeah. stored by President Biden. 
and weeks ahead, potentially, of his official announcement to run for president again? It's not an easy job yeah. that he's walking into by any means. The chief of staff job is famously tough and difficult. Yeah. You're managing the West Wing. You're also working so closely with the president. What I, we heard from sources is that essentially he'll be focused more on the running government aspect. The political portfolio is still going to fall to those other names okay. that are, are senior staffers to Biden that work in the West Wing that did not get the job. But he is, I mean, they have a Republican-controlled House. Mm-hmm. Biden is set to announce his re-election run soon in just a matter of weeks, we believe. And now he's going to be dealing with the fallout from the special yeah. counsel investigation. It's always a tough job, but especially so now. Especially tough. All right, great reporting. Thank you, Caitlin. Yeah. We also learned Saturday night of a historic search by the FBI of a sitting president's home, as we were just referencing there. The Justice Department seizing more than half a dozen documents from Biden's Delaware residence in a search that was done at the invitation of Biden's attorneys, we should note. FBI agents were there for nearly 13 hours, and some of what was found dates back to Biden's time as vice president and even further back to his time in the Senate. CNN's Dana Bash pressed the Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin about this dramatic escalation of this investigation. You've been in Congress for 40 years. You've handled classified material for a lot of those years, probably most of them. How concerned are you about this? Well, I'm concerned uh, there's a standard that we follow when it comes to members of Congress and classified information. Uh, The door to my office is closed. The person who presents the document to me takes it out of a locked uh, briefcase, hands it to me and watches as I read it. When I finish reading it, he takes it back, puts it in the briefcase and leaves the scene. I mean, that's how carefully we review these documents to think that any of them ended up uh, in in boxes uh, in storage one place or the other is just unacceptable. And joining us now is Dana Bash. And Dana, I mean, these were amazing interviews. I always love the Sunday shows, but these were really amazing interviews that you had yesterday. But hearing Dick Durbin talk about that and also hearing him, you know, say, talk about his concern when you asked, you know, do, you, do Democrats kind of think that Biden has lost the high ground here yeah. when it comes mm-hmm. to this classified documents discussion? Yeah. And his answer was basically yes. Uh, and, and so there really are two questions here. The most important question is the substance of it, the substance of uh, what happened, what's there, why did it happen? That's the most critical. The other, the other issue, which is very, very prominent, as you were just talking about, is the political issue. And the questions of this, uh, all of these documents being found, and the whole notion of it happening against the backdrop of the former president. Uh, We've talked very much, and we need to continue to talk about the differences in these situations, predominantly in the way that each man handled uh, the classified information once they found out that it was there. But, uh, you know, when you have the current president saying uh, many times over how horrible he thought it was that Donald Trump had classified information, it is true that politically it mixes things up. It messes things up for Democrats. And that is what the number two Democrat in the Senate, who happens to be the judiciary chairman in the Senate, mm-hmm. was acknowledging. He, he, he served with Joe Biden. He is close with Joe Biden. He loves Joe Biden. But he and other Democrats are clearly frustrated. Yeah, that Joe Manchin saying, you know, it's unbelievable and calling it totally irresponsible. Let's talk about something else, because in that interview with with Senator Joe Manchin, you also asked him about something that just happened today, and that is that Ruben Gallego thinking about launching Mm -hmm. a Senate campaign for the Democratic ticket in the state of Arizona, of course, with Senator Sinema now being an independent. And you asked Manchin sort of who he would back. 
Um, and he spoke very high, without directly answering, he spoke very highly mm-hmm. of Kirsten Cinema. What did you take from that? Uh, what I took is that he is uh, obviously somebody who sees Kirsten Cinema as a uh, as a partner in a lot of the issues that they fought in the last Congress and certainly will continue to fight in this Congress, primarily uh, what we saw actually in Davos last the week. The high five. Was, was right, was now a, a viral moment where the two of them were high-fiving over the question of the Senate filibuster and the fact that they both fought to preserve uh, the Senate filibuster on legislation to make sure that uh, things slow down, which is not something that a lot of Democrats uh, in the base are happy about because it it stymied the president's agenda in a big way uh, over the last two years. Uh, But the answer that he gave was effectively, you're right, we kind of went round and round, but somewhere in there he did say yes, uh, (laughs) that he would likely back Kirsten Sinema, who, of course, is now an independent. She left the Democratic Party uh, if she decides to run against Ruben Gallego, who we thought was going to announce, and you're right, this morning he made it official that he is a Democrat who will challenge uh, Kirsten Sinema for her Senate seat if she decides to uh, seek re-election herself. I also want to ask you, Deanna, about the other thing that's happening on the Hill. You know, you covered the Hill for a long time, and Hakeem Jeffries is basically setting mm-hmm. up this clash with Speaker Kevin McCarthy because over Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell being on committees, they said he's still going to name them to, to that. And McCarthy has said no, that they cannot serve, that this is what they believe Democrats set up when they stripped other Republicans mm-hmm. like Marjorie Taylor Greene of their committee assignments. They say this is, you know, kind of the retribution in response to that. What is this going to look like? Ugly. I mean, this is the ultimate political tit for tat that you're seeing here. And Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, is trying to protect two people who he believes have been wrongly blocked from a very important committee, the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, The Republican, the now, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he insists that, particularly in the case of Eric Swalwell, that he handled classified information improperly. We have seen no evidence of that. Privately, Democrats insist that he has not—that uh, that is not true, according to federal law enforcement agents. And, by the way, if that were true, why was he allowed to sit on that committee for, you know, almost a decade. We, we don't know uh, the answer to exactly what Republicans are accusing Swalwell of. But when you kind of take a step back, we know what's going on here. What's going on is that Democrats removed uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committees for uh, very aggressive, hateful comments that they made that went against the tradition of the House. Traditionally, each leader decides which members of their own party sits on committees. And McCarthy is uh, trying payback here. And Hakeem Jeffries made a point, made a statement by nominating them to say, we're not going to let you do that. But the truth is, it is the majority that has the power, and they probably will be allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Dana, thank you. As Caitlin said, great jam-packed show yesterday. Great interviews. <laughs> Good Thank to you, see you very much. Thanks. Good to see you, too. So coming up, we are going to take you to Graceland and the memorial for Lisa Marie Presley. Need some time on your own. Ooh, don't you know you need some time all alone? I know it's hard to keep.
back now in Monterey Park, California, at the scene of this weekend's deadly shooting here. Ten people dead that sent ten people to the hospital as well. And we're at the facility. It's called the Star Dance Studio, where there were dozens and dozens of people here when it happened. And just looking at this memorial that has been set up just by the people here who are mourning and try wanting to pay their respects. As I look into the hall here, there are still the uh, coffee tins. Uh, and the cardboard uh, coffee drums still inside here, pizza boxes. Obviously, people are fleeing this and trying to get to safety. Um, as we were talking to one of our guests earlier, she talked about the memorial that has been set up here. Flowers and candles, obviously, as we see these makeshift memorials that are set up at so many of these awful shootings that we so sadly have to go through around the country. But for here, it's interesting because there are numbers uh, on the flowers and on the candles that are set up here, numbers um, dedicated to the number of people who were killed and injured um, at this at this place, and of course flowers, and then there are fruit, oranges, uh, and apples here, and we're told that is for good health after a meal, even some winter melon that we're seeing here. But all of this just moments after this happened, and when police cleared this place to say to deem it safe, people started to bring these. Um, symbols of expression and of love and to honor the people who were hurt and injured here. And you know, Poppy and Caitlin, it's really awful because you guys have been on these scenes as well where you see these memorials pop up and some of them, you know, become larger and larger over time. And I keep wondering, when are we not going to have to do this to mm -hmm. set up memorials uh, for people who have been just randomly shot, indiscriminately shot, by someone who is just angry and who happens to have a semi-automatic weapon. What yeah. did, what did question? It's, it is the question, right? But this is America today. Another, I thought that, you know, when I woke up to the news, another mass shooting. Don, what did people say to you when you landed? You know, I know what it's like when you come into a breaking news situation and you come, yeah. you know, there and, and there are many people around and there are the authorities and you're waiting for the press conference. I just wonder what people around you were saying. Well, just in full transparency, you know, we pull up on these scenes and most, most of the time it's communities that we have never gone to before. Right. And you know what? Sometimes we go to places we had been before, right? There'll be another shooting in a place that we had been uh, before, sadly. But I, I'm just going to be honest with you. And I drew, I, I, when I got the call, I just grabbed my bag, jumped onto a plane. I didn't even have an iPhone charger. So the first place I went to is to try to get an iPhone charger. And there were people, some of the stores that I had gone to had not been open, and they had just opened the store. store. So there were people waiting in line uh, at the, an Asian supermarket here trying to get groceries finally or being allowed back into the store. Uh, there were security guards who were standing uh, at the local uh, drugstore um, just to make sure that people were safe because people weren't feeling safe uh, at that moment. And then dozens and dozens and dozens of media here, live trucks, satellite mm -hmm. trucks, I mean, people from all over the country and, of course, the local media. So sadly, and, and police tape, um, you know, wrapping the area and we could barely get in. So I had to grab my suitcase and, and walk a couple of blocks to get in. But those, those how, that's how the scenes are when we, you know, drive up on these places, sadly, um, when people have been killed. Yeah. Yeah. And Don, you say you, when you ask the question, when is that going to stop? Look at the White House. I mean, regularly you see the White House lowering the flags to half staff after there, there has been a shooting like this one. They lowered it yesterday. And, you know, the White House is set to hold a Lunar New Year event mm -hmm. later this week. So we'll see what President Biden and, and they have to say about that. Uh, Don, thank you.
I know you're going to be there with us throughout the day. We'll see you back here in just about right. an hour, co-anchoring from there at 10 a.m. Eastern. Don, yeah. thanks very, very much. Also, Elvis Presley's only child has been laid to rest. This happened over the weekend at the famed Graceland Estate in Memphis. Lisa Marie Presley was rushed to the hospital on January 12th after suffering a cardiac arrest. Family, friends, and fans gathered Sunday to honor her life and to pay tribute. Some would say, but a broken heart was the doing of her death. Now she is home where she always belonged, but my heart is missing her love. Our heart is broken, Lisa, we all love you. We've been hurting for a while. Can we cut ourselves some slack and let us lie down? Let them lie down. Let her lie down. I stand here with great honor uh, because we called each other Sissy. So, Sissy, this is for you with affection. My late uh, mother-in-law used to say that nothing can be said, can begin to take away the anguish and the pain of these moments because grief is the price we pay for love. And how right she was. Summer storm graces all of me. Highway one sing silent poetry. Thank you for showing me that love is the only thing that matters in this life. I hope I can love my daughter the way you loved me. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.